Good evening, and welcome to Midnight Audio Theater, the weekly show where we bring you new and original audio dramas, be they adventure, mystery, sci-fi, or comedy. I'm your host, Kathy Ranella. Hello and welcome back, Audio Drama Files. I hope you're ready for some down-to-earth excitement and intrigue. Tonight and next week, we're going to be transported to Seattle, Washington, where one man finds himself with a very curious family mystery on his hands. Add to it some modern-day drama and treasure hunting, and you get Studio 5705's premiere production of Dirt, an audio drama podcast. It all begins with Joseph Elo and a strange letter he receives in the mail from someone who has long since passed. The series is written by Chris Cayella, who also serves as director, producer, and composer of Dirt. The series began as a collection of short fiction ideas that slowly began to take shape as Chris became interested in fiction podcasts. He soon realized that the serialized audio format could be a great way to tell his tale, given the story's various settings and environments. So, in late 2009, he decided to jump into the independent world of podcasting, research what he needed to make his story come to life, and went for it. This labor of love resulted in a six-episode first season, released in the fall of 2020, with the promises of a season two of Dirt sometime this year. So now is the perfect time to get in on listening to the series and binging all of that first season in one go. This is a great production that brings a lot of fun storytelling elements to the table. Relatable characters, thorough sound design and audio effects, and a story that is a refreshing change of pace in its character conversations, progression, and the hints of the treasure hunt, with cliffhangers that leave you not anxious, but curious for what happens next. You can hear it yourself tonight. It's time to listen in to Dirt, an audio drama, episodes one and two. Are you bracing yourself? And you're supposed to keep a low profile. Enjoy. Joey, what is it? Is there something here for you, Joseph? Salvador, I mean, Mr. Flores, I have a question for you. Okay, Joseph, I've been waiting for it. Hello, and welcome to Dirt, an audio drama. I'm Chris Cayella, writer, director, and producer of the show. Just a few quick notes before the story gets going. You're about to experience an original tale performed by a talented group of actors that's full of mystery, suspense, cliffhangers, strange phenomena, and much more, set in the diverse landscape of Washington State. Dirt is an immersive audio experience that can be enjoyed anywhere, from any speaker. I personally prefer to listen to podcasts while on my evening walk with my dog, Reggie. But for the fullest audio experience, I recommend listening to Dirt with your favorite set of headphones or earbuds. Please follow the show on Twitter. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, that's it for now. Here comes Chapter 1. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show.
Dirt, an audio drama, is a production of Studio 5705. Chapter 1 Sometime around the year 2010, a man in his 80s named Forrest Fenn hid a chestful of treasure somewhere in America's Rocky Mountain Range, and lots of people went looking for it, all over the West. It's not hard to understand why. The contents of the chest were reported to be worth between one and five million dollars. And according to Fenn, an antiques collector and art dealer who was based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the person who eventually found the chest, ten years later, got to keep it, along with everything inside of it, all for themselves. There's a good chance you already know about Fenn's treasure, considering it's been covered by National Public Radio, Reader's Digest, Newsweek, Forbes, People Magazine, and local newspapers and TV stations around the world. But in case you don't know, here's a little more background. Published images of the chest show that it was a bronze 10 by 10 inch box decorated with Romanesque figures and carvings. Inside were things like gold nuggets from Alaska, rare coins, and gemstones. When fully filled, it weighed close to 40 pounds, sturdy enough to withstand the passing of time and harsh elements yet light enough for an octogenarian to have carried it from his car to its mysterious hiding place. Fenn, who died in 2020, mere months after the treasure was found, said he did it all to inspire people to reconnect with the natural world, to go on an adventure and rediscover something lost. And, he insisted, no one besides him knew the exact location of the chest, not his wife nor his closest relatives. So, if he did it all in secrecy, How did it become such a sensation? The answers lie in Fenn's self-published autobiography, The Thrill of the Chase. In it, among the many recounted tales of his adventurous life, including flying more than 300 missions in Vietnam and successfully battling cancer in the 1980s, there contains a map and clues about where the chest was hidden. The clues were written by Fenn as a 24-line poem, in a style of prose that sounds straight out of Narnia or Middle-earth, with phrases like, begin it where warm waters halt, and put in below the home of Brown. Among the estimated hundreds of thousands of searchers, many documented their efforts online. And as you might expect, Reddit went nuts over the whole thing. And yet, with Fenn remaining coy about the exact location of the chest right up until his death, dedicated searchers are left to wonder if they were ever close to finding it, or if finding gold was really ever the goal at all. So, why do I bring all this up? My story isn't about Forrest Fenn, but it does remind me of what's happening in my own life. A treasure hunt of sorts, with mysterious origins. And for reasons that I'll soon explain. I think my deceased grandfather is trying to communicate with me.
from Studio 5705. This is Dirt. Wow, it still works. I can't believe it. <laughs> I know. I think Mom and Dad got it in 75. I've used it a few times here and there, mostly back when I thought about converting all this to digital. Still hoping to one of these days. When I say my deceased grandfather is trying to communicate with me, I don't mean I'm literally getting transmissions from beyond the grave. At least, I don't think that's what's happening. I'm not one to believe in that kind of stuff. What I mean is that several strange things have happened lately that I can't really explain. Things that all tie back to him. And what makes it weirder is that these things are coming out of nowhere. My grandfather died 30 years ago. Yet either by coincidence or by design, it seems that he, or somebody connected to him, wants me to find something. But what that something is, and why me, and why now, I have no idea. Okay, there they are. I think this is in Portland. Looks like McKenna Park? Yeah, yeah, it is. I can tell from the playground. They used to have to drag me off of that spinning roundabout thing. I loved it so much. Pretty sure I barfed once afterward in the car. Ooh, not on me, I hope. I flew from my home in Seattle to Santa Monica to visit my sister Kim over the weekend and find out if these old movies were still watchable. Film can decay over time, but if this first one was any indication, they were holding up pretty well. Our grandfather was 77 when he died, in 1990. I was seven. I really only remember him as a vague presence in my life. I wasn't old enough to form any real memories of our interactions, just images and feelings. Like when he and my grandmother visited our house one time. It was always a big deal when they arrived. They lived in Portland and we lived in Seattle and they usually stayed over for a few days at a time. I have a picture in my mind of being out in the front yard with my sister and my brother when they pulled up to the curb in their silver Volkswagen with their luggage tied down tightly on top. They were on their way home from a long drive to Alaska and back, which, if you can believe it, they did a total of six times over the years. I remember their windshield and front grille absolutely pasted with bugs. My grandmother told me years later that she always felt like her body bounced for days on end long after they get back from the Alaska highway due to all the potholes and rough sections they had to endure during their weeks of driving. I can also remember moments from my grandfather's memorial. Again, just flashes of images. It was on the banks of the Columbia River at Mary Hill State Park. It was windy and hot, and the river, just beyond the edge of the grass, looked more like a giant lake. I remember there being lots of people sitting in lawn chairs under big, shady trees. A strange combination of sadness and laughter. My grandparents both came from large extended families and had lots of friends that they'd met and become close to from all over. I think my grandmother was the real secret to that. She could make friends with anyone in about five seconds. There are other things too, like having to play piano for my grandfather and eating ketchup sandwiches with him. But most of what I know about my grandparents comes from home movies like these. No matter where they went or what they did, they always had a camera filming everything from big moments like graduations and new cars to the small details of everyday life. My sister, whom I deferentially call the extended family archivist, is in possession of most of the original slides and film reels. Oh, look, he's getting it out of the trunk. 
The other major source of knowledge about my grandparents' lives is the collection of short stories that my grandfather wrote in his later years. It's called A Hitchhiker's Guide to Grays Harbor by Imo Elo, and it sits on my bookshelf at home next to my other favorite story collection, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven. Grays Harbor refers to Grays Harbor in Washington State, the wide estuary on the coast where my grandfather grew up. The hitchhiking part, well, you'll hear about that later. We're watching footage of Imo do something that became one of his favorite hobbies later in life, metal detecting. But first, you may be wondering what kind of name Imo is. It's spelled A-I-M-O, and in Finnish, it means something like fair-sized or generous amount. At least, that's what Google tells me. It kind of feels like the wrong name for him, though. He was pretty thin for most of his life, and not tall. About five foot nine. In this reel, dated 1966, he's in his mid-fifties, and already starting to look aged in his dark brown slacks and short sleeve buttoned-up shirt. We watch as the camera follows him, in the jittery way that Super 8 footage does, as he walks across a small street to the edge of a park. The footage then jumps abruptly to him standing 30 feet or so in the park, on the grassy lawn, slowly moving the long, downward arm of the metal detector to and fro. He looks up and smiles quickly at the camera, as if asked to do so. Then he goes right back to work, taking a few short steps before hovering the disc over a new spot. We don't get to see him kneel down or dig in the ground, as the footage abruptly cuts once more and we see him facing the camera up close now, flashing a satisfied smile. The camera then pans down to his cupped right hand, which is holding what looks like a coin. Then we're back to seeing his face again, and he's saying something to the camera and smiles once more. But there's no audio attached to these reels, so we're left trying to read lips. A few seconds later, the footage shows Imo holding a different coin in a slightly different part of the park. I wonder how many of those he found over the years. I think a lot. Coins, rings, and other stuff. I have an earring he gave me. I had it appraised years ago, but it was just costume jewelry. Looks pretty real, though. Each of the reels we watched had a segment of Imo using his metal detector in different locations. Parks, beaches, campsites, wide open fields, even one time in a neighbor's yard, with the neighbor's beagle going crazy running in circles and finally helping Imo dig a small hole in the ground. Oh, and there she is. Now Imo must be filming because we're seeing Vivian, our grandmother, sitting on a wooden bench gazing across the park at the houses and tall trees on the far side. Her hair is loosely curled and her legs are crossed. She looks serene and elegant in a white ruffled blouse. The camera is angled perfectly to place her in a long shot and you can feel the stylish mood they were going for. Then she bursts out laughing, unable to hold the moment. Well, there's the first one. That was about three minutes. Should we do another? Yeah. Yeah, this is great. Suddenly, two judo students burst into the room with loud shrieks and sharp arm and leg movements, followed by Kim's husband, Kenji, who announces he's taking the kids to practice. All right, kids. Say goodbye to Uncle Joseph. Bye, Uncle Joseph! Okay, guys. Have fun at practice. Hey, break a few woodblocks for me, will ya? That's more karate, not judo. Right. I'll try to remember that. After about a half dozen more movie reels, Kim and I rent electric scooters and head over to one of her favorite restaurants in Venice for lunch. A stylish Korean barbecue joint with dance music. Once we're seated, it doesn't take her long to get personal. 
So, you and Julie. What's going on there? Uh, it's complicated. So, you're not together then? <laughs> I didn't say that. We still see each other sometimes. It's okay, it's okay. You don't have to soften the blow for me. I don't like her much anyway. Hey! It's true! Or maybe it was just her giant St. Bernard. You know I love dogs. Joseph, that dog needed some serious boundaries. What? You don't like having a 200-pound slobbering fluffball climb on your lap all day? Come on, what's wrong with you? Actually, that dog slept with us every night. Or I should say, slept on me every night. I couldn't even see her touch Julie on the other side. My love life is pretty fair game, I guess, considering that A, it's been in the news, and B, I've introduced three different girlfriends to my family in the last year and a half alone. Each one, of course, was supposed to be the one. That's what most everyone around me is gunning for, for me to find someone nice to settle down with. Kim has, and she seems pretty happy with Kenji and the kids and her life down here. But she's four years ahead of me. Our little brother, Eric, he's been engaged for five years, and they're finally getting married in August. For now, I've been advised to keep this part of my life very private. Spare everyone around me, as well as nosy reporters and photographers, the roller coaster ride of my unsuccessful dating life. When something real happens for me, if it happens, well, then we'll see about introductions. And work? How is the life of the celebrity CEO these days? Hmm. I get written up in a bunch of magazines, and you guys think I'm Mark Zuckerberg. It's not like that. Oh, you're on TV too. I've seen it. Yeah, that was just a PR tour. You know we were just named a top 10 agency. The ticker under your name read Joseph Elo, Wolf of Wall Street. And they showed photos of you in your private jet. Whoa. Okay, you know I don't have a private jet, and that was just a weekend getaway to blow off some steam. To Bali? It was a long weekend, and a few people got carried away on Instagram. And what about the hotel room in Tokyo last year? <laughs> During Algorithm and AdWords week. Like I said on camera, I made sure the band got home after they played for us. Okay. They also mentioned... Okay. Point taken. Gotta admit, I do miss the days of flying under the radar. It was a lot easier when no one knew about us. I didn't have to be so careful about every little thing I did. Now that we're a $40 million company with a potential buyer, it seems everybody is watching. So please, by the way, don't do anything embarrassing right now in case you're being photographed. Aha. Uh -huh. Who's the buyer? Oh, these short ribs are amazing. Mm. It's a group in Berlin called Molecular. They own five other agencies about our size in the States, plus 10 others in Europe and Asia. It's a great move for us. It's basically what we've been working toward. <laughs> that said, Molecular is very by the book. They don't make much room for fun. In fact, I've personally been put on notice about maintaining a positive public persona, whatever that means, until the purchase goes through. None of that's been announced yet, by the way. So shush. My lips are sealed. Right after this next bite. Huh. Hey, I'm speaking at a few conferences coming up, two this month alone. In fact, one of them is down here. And then there's our own agency conference. Uh, convergence? I mean, confluence? No, wait, I've got it. Fusion? <laughs> um, conjoin? Conjoin, right. 
I knew it was one of those together words. You know that's actually hard to say. Conjoin. Is it conjoin or conjoin? You couldn't just go with convergence? Yeah, convergence is taken. But conjoin. It's a little bit of a play on words. Using con for conference, like Comic-Con? Okay, I'm not in love with it either. But when you put on a big show like this, it has to have an equally big name that sounds substantial and generic at the same time. Right. Mission accomplished. Where are you putting it on this year? Minneapolis. I'll be giving the keynote for that one, too. You should attend. Hey, you could give a talk. <laughs> a talk? A talk about what? Are your attendees dying to know about the inner workings of the hypothalamuses of Suscrofa domesticus? <laughs> Maybe. You know pigs are actually quite sweet. Lots of personality. You wouldn't know unless you spend every day with them. Yeah. I hear pigs, and I go straight to bacon. But seriously though, anything having to do with the brain or the decision-making mechanics of any species? I think people would sign up to hear about that. Or maybe they'd just sign up since you related to me. <laughs> well, I'll think about it. But what I really want to know right now is why you came all the way down here to watch reels of Grandpa digging up pennies in the dirt. I mean, I know we're all a bit sentimental about those days. But there must be more to it than that. Hey, it's great spending time with you and Kenji and the kids. That's not something we do enough of. Right. You're right about that. But come on, little brother, I can tell something's up. There are dozens of film reels in that storage box. You wanted to see movies of Grandpa using his beeper. Yeah. So? Well, it's just... Okay, brace yourself. Are you bracing yourself? Yeah. I have a hunch about something. Whoa. Whoa, from Mr. Evidence-Based Research? Did you say hunch? Did you see the way Grandpa looks up at the camera when he finds something? Did you notice how he talks to the camera? Close up? Just for a few seconds. It happens almost every time. You know, it's too bad those reels don't have sound. I would love to hear their voices again. Although I guess that's what I've always liked about old movies. I mean, without sound, it really feels like something from another era. Yeah, same here. But, in those moments when he addresses the camera, I mean, maybe he's just talking to Grandma or whoever was filming about whatever he found or about the weather. We're just making nervous talk because he was on camera. Could just be conversational stuff, I suppose. But what if it wasn't? What if instead he was saying something specific in those moments? Like something very intentional. What do you mean? Okay, stay with me here. What if he was delivering some kind of message? Something that I or we are supposed to understand years later? I know, I know, but I have my reasons for thinking that. You have your reasons? Yeah. I don't know, Joseph. Leaving messages on home movies for future you to decipher? That seems strange. I mean, we were just kids when he died. We barely knew him. How, how could he know you'd pick up on something like that all these years later? It's not just the Super 8 reels. It's other stuff, too. Stuff you could say... I've recently become tuned into. Okay. I like the conspiracy angle you're going for here. It sounds like about five of the podcasts I've been listening to. 
But if you're asking me, and I don't think you did, but hi, favorite sister here. It just, it just doesn't seem like him to have a hidden motive or be cryptic or anything. It doesn't fit the profile, you know? Not of him or really anyone in the family. There's no dirt on anyone. Except maybe Uncle Lyle, but that's more just his own stuff that he's working out. Why does it have to be dirt? Couldn't it be something else? I mean, sure, it could be dirt. But maybe Imo had something different in mind. Something that's, I don't know, more of a game? Some kind of puzzle to solve? You know how he was. <laughs> okay, well, this lunch has taken a weird turn. I know. So what has you thinking this way? You must have some kind of evidence to support your theory. Kim is totally right. I don't live on hunches. And the same can be said of her. I think maybe it started years ago, when our parents died. I think we stopped being dreamers when that happened. But also, we're both scientists. And because of that, I feel foolish suggesting there might be some kind of unexplainable connection between our past and what I'm experiencing in the present. But I'm hoping she can help me make sense of it. So, evidence. Well, this is where it gets really interesting. For one, I've been having dreams. Dreams where it's like I'm a character inside of Imo's stories. I'm talking really, really vivid dreams, almost like visions. Hey, I know dreams are just reflections of our subconscious, but also it's the timing of the dreams. I've been having them almost every night for the last two weeks now. Before that, nothing. Okay. Why do you point that out? What's significant about the timing? Because I started having them around the time I received this. I grab an envelope from my jacket pocket and hand it to Kim. Her face becomes serious, like I'm delivering a warrant or an eviction notice. I give her a moment to look at it, and then she opens it. She pulls out a piece of paper that I know she'll recognize. She looks up at me and then back down at the paper. Her eyes scan its contents. She looks back up, and then she reads it again. What is this? I suppose that's what it looks like. It's, it's his handwriting and everything. And it's... You just got this. Yep. Joseph? In her hands is a letter I'd received in the mail. An impossible letter. A letter that arrived only 10 days ago. A letter from Imo. Our dead grandfather. Dirt, an audio drama, is presented by Studio 5705 and is written, produced, and composed by me, Chris Cayella. This chapter features the voice talents of Jeannie Leslie as Kim, Sho Ito as Kenji, and Price and Parker Brooking as Kim and Kenji's kids. I play the part of Joseph. There are a number of people who helped bring Dirt, an audio drama, to life. Special thanks to Ken Cayella, Patty and Gordon Lewandowski, Katrina Hostetter, Stephen Matera, Mark Field, Brittany Carroll, Courtney Fuller, Graham Moore, Henry Moore, Sho Ito, Mike Grigg, Jonathan Fuentes, Anna Noval, Megan Morales, Jesse Brown, John Dietrich, and Chris Garces. And a special thank you to Kirsten Cayella, 
who supplied the sound of our family's old 8mm projector for this chapter. And finally, thank you to my wife, Sarah Cayella, for constant support, collaboration, and for the podcast artwork. For more information about Dirt, an audio drama, as well as media or sponsorship inquiries, please visit dirtaudiodrama.com. That's dirtaudiodrama.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app or platform. And please, spread the word. Thank you very much for listening. Dirt, an audio drama, is a production of Studio 5705. Chapter 2 I hear the woman and the man speaking in their strange language. She's cleaning up after breakfast, and he's tending to the boat's noisy engine. A strange engine, with large pipes and valves and wheels, like something out of a history museum. When he's satisfied with the pop and chug of the old Frisco standard, he gazes out to sea and packs some tobacco in his pipe and lights it, sending aromatic puffs of blue smoke into the moist marine air. Several long poles extend over the port and starboard sides of the wooden trawler, with multiple fishing lines running off of each into the gray water. The man and the woman don't seem to notice me, even when I gesture at them. They go about their business, steering the boat, cleaning the salmon they've caught, opening and closing hatches. I observe them doing this for some time until I hear the woman say loudly to her husband, Tuola Kaukana, on PNA Vene. She's pointing at something over the bow of the boat. Her husband walks forward to join her, and together, they stare at the rolling waves. Suddenly, I'm standing directly behind them, straining to see what they see. And then, I notice it. Something small, rising and falling, coming into and out of view with each giant wave crest. The woman turns to me, her eyes meeting mine for the first time and says in words that I now understand. There, far off, is a small boat. I see its shape more clearly. It's flat, like a canoe. The man steers the trawler in its direction, and we strain to keep sight of it. Somehow I know there's something in the boat that I need to see. Yet with each new sighting, as we rise to the top of the waves, the boat is tinier and tinier. We try to keep up with it, but it's drifting away. It seems to be on the edge of the world now, a tiny dot on the horizon. It drops below the line where the water meets the sky, and then it's gone. Something to get me going. Ah, connect to speaker. Okay, before you point out all the obvious explanations to me about the letter that I showed Kim, 
like that maybe it had simply been held up in the mail all these years. And that has actually happened, by the way. Just the other day, I read an article about pieces of mail that were delivered decades after they were sent. One letter in particular was sent by a mother in 1969 to a Brooklyn address, wishing her then 19-year-old daughter a happy birthday. It didn't arrive until 2014, 45 years late, and long after the mother had passed on. So sure, that kind of thing happens sometimes. Letters get lost in the mail. But in my case, the letter I received from IMO was sent to my current address, an address I've had for only two months. So, the next likely explanation, that somebody's messing with me. I mean, yeah, of course this could be it. The thing about the letter, though, besides the generic courier typewriter font on the envelope, is that it's handwritten on my grandparents' stationery. That's part of the reason Kim was so floored. We all know that stationery. When I was a kid, I received a lot of letters from my grandmother, as did Kim and Eric and everyone else. Vivian would write about the weather, about who had visited recently and what they were up to, which flowers were in bloom on her patio, those kinds of things. The stationery had her and Imo's names embossed at the top. I compared the letter I received 10 days ago with a few of the letters from Vivian that I've kept over the years, and to my eye, the stationery is the same. And the handwriting is just like Imo's, from what I've seen in letters that he sent to my parents and others. It even has their red rose embossed at the bottom of the stationery. So then, the third explanation, that somebody is acting on my grandfather's behalf 30 years later. If Imo really did write the letter, and I'm not being pranked, this seems the most likely option, that he wrote it back in the 80s and left instructions with someone to deliver it to me at a specific time. But who would that be? And how would they know me today? And why wait 30 years? And if the someone who's doing this knows my current address, what else do they know? And what else might they be planning? My brain won't let any of this go. Instead of being laser-focused like I usually am on Monday mornings, I walk into my first meeting of the day dying to know what's hidden in a small wooden boat adrift at sea. Angela hands me a brief at the door, two pages of project objectives and audience insights. We're doing a fast-turn project for a new client, a potentially huge new client. I don't normally get this involved in the day-to-day deliverables anymore, but if we kill this, and if we don't kill ourselves with infighting on the team, it should lead to a very nice contract. Molecular is observing us in action from their Berlin office for the first time today to evaluate our methodology. So the stakes are doubly high to perform at our best. Okay, everybody, grab your seats. Let's do this. Is room B ready? Checking right now. Bingo. Is molecular patched in? Looks like... Yes. Okay. We're running. Are you ready to get started? I sure am. What is it I'll be doing exactly? (laughs) There are four others here in room A, and through the one-way mirror in front of us, I can see Ela, who's our information architect, and the test subject, sitting at a small desk in the much brighter adjoining room. Ela has her laptop open, and its screen reflects in her glasses every time she looks at it. On the desk in front of the test subject is a smartphone. Everything that happens on the phone is displayed on the large monitor in our room. Robert, who's sitting a couple of desks in front of me, types something into a messaging app on his laptop, and Ela acknowledges it. Okay, Helen. Looks like we're all set. I'm going to hand you this phone. Here you go. And I'm going to ask you to accomplish certain tasks today. 
I'm not going to tell you how to accomplish them. That's up to you. There's no time limit and absolutely no pressure. I can answer questions if you need me to, but I'd prefer that you try to work out the solution by yourself. Does that sound okay? Sure. Wow, this is a nice phone. Definitely better than the old clunker I have. Guess it's time for an upgrade or update or whatever they call it. Yeah. The point of the test is to determine the efficacy of our prototype. Specifically, the client asked us to come up with a solution that adds clarity and that reduces the number of steps needed for users to access things on the app. And by extension, to remedy all the one-star ratings and crushingly bad reviews the app has been getting. Our prototype was built by Ela and a developer, under Angela's supervision. Okay, now, what does this first screen feel like to you? Well, it looks like a homepage, basically. Like a summary of... Ela is the youngest person on our team, just a few months out of grad school. We recruited her pretty hard, as did our competition. Aside from her outstanding master's thesis on emerging behaviors in digital currency, she shows a lot of leadership potential. Angela, our most senior project lead, hasn't taken as kindly to Ela's quickly rising star and fresh ideas. The two have been butting heads over which direction to go in with the prototype, with Ela's solutions thus far winning over the team. So that's mainly why I'm here, to keep the peace particularly since Molecular is watching. But it hasn't been easy, especially with Angela. Okay, now, let's say that the main reason you're using the app is because you need to find the results of a recent lab test. Lab test? Those are on the app? Yeah, well, lab results. Wow. Well, I see on the home screen there are three buttons. One says my prescriptions. One says... On the monitor in our room, we see that she selects my medical history. Angela, who's been still as a statue up to this point, begins writing in her notebook. Okay, now, can you describe for me the screen that the app took you to? Ooh, ooh, I like this. Everything is presented so... It's simple. It's different than the rest. Did you design it this way? Without even glancing her way. I can tell Angela has that look on her face. Should we click and find out if Jane has herpes? (laughs) (laughs) Tell Ela to go back to the homepage and ask the subject how she would go about printing out her lab results. Two people in front of us turn around, startled by Angela's voice. Robert obediently types a message to Ela. Ela looks at her laptop, then quickly at the window toward us, then back at the laptop. Well, hopefully. Jane doesn't have herpes. But let's try one more thing. Let's go back to the home screen again. Okay, good. Now, let's say you want to print out the lab results, maybe to share with your spouse or partner. From here in the app, how would you go about doing that? Well, I guess I'd click. (laughs) I keep saying click, don't I? Is it tap? Ela is typing on her laptop. A moment later... Robert turns to face Angela. She says we haven't gotten that far with the prototype yet. Angela raises her eyebrows. I thought the prototype was test ready. I guess it's not. Looks like we'll have to pause until all the bugs can be worked out. Um, I don't think that's a bug. Printing isn't part of the testing regimen today. We need to be ready to test all scenarios. Otherwise, we're just wasting company time bringing people in too early. But printing is on the list of value adds we're taking back to the client, correct? Yes. 
we all know where this is going. Angela is going to push for another round of revisions, which means more testing, a missed deadline, probably going over budget, an unexpected conversation with Molecular, and more tension on the team. So much for making a positive first impression. She's not wrong, but it's not what we need right now. I'm sorry, Joseph. I was given the impression we were ready to go. Clearly, we are not. I'm looking, and I don't see a way to print from here. How many more features are we adding? Nine. And how many more tests scheduled? Eleven. Today and tomorrow. Okay. Let's cancel the rest of the tests for today. Printing isn't a deal breaker, but I agree we should get all the additional features into the prototype and then test everything concurrently. And no later than one week from today. I'll handle talking to the client. Everyone clear? Robert types into his messaging screen, and Ela looks up at us through the window again. She can't see me, so it's no use giving her a look of understanding. Instead, I turn to Angela and ask her to be in my office in 10 minutes. Okay, Helen. That's all we need for today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, that was fast. Oh, honey, you don't look too happy. Did I pass the test? Oh, you did just fine, Helen. Yes, you passed. Maybe you were hoping our prototype would be something a little more interesting, like a super-secret classified tool for the NSA, or maybe something shadowy for an under-the-radar tech startup with reams of non-disclosure agreements. The truth is, we do do some of that secret stuff, but most of what we do is pretty routine. Companies hire us when things are broken. We take what they have and make it better. We apply behavioral science. We test, we iterate, we test some more. If you actually enjoy logging in and paying your utility bill, or don't mind getting reminded to take the vitamins that you ordered from a supplements app, that's probably because of us. I won't recount my whole conversation with Angela, except to say I made it clear I thought calling out Ela in front of everyone over such a small detail was petty. I've worked with Angela for a long time, and we can be blunt with each other. She told me that I was favoring Ela, and that I really needed to think about what fair means. Fair enough. But I reminded Angela that Ela was intentionally given more responsibility on this project, so we could see how she'd respond. I'd hoped that Angela would handle the whole thing better. When she stormed out of my office, it left a pit in my already churning stomach. You want to take a walk? That's my assistant, Mel. She's unique. I've had some assistants who are routinely two, maybe five steps behind. Mel is different. Mel is usually steps ahead. You seem distracted. Plus, I overheard some of your chat with Angela. Yeah. Not how I plan to spend my morning. I ordered lunch for you. It'll be here in an hour, after you get back. How do you do that? I just ordered it off a website. No, I mean, how do you know what's going to happen before it happens? It's like your future, Mel. Just be careful. Last time you took a walk, you had five people stop you for selfies. You're supposed to keep a low profile. It wasn't a PR stunt, I promise. Okay, well, I've been saving this for the right time. If you're gonna take a walk... Mel hands me a clear package that I can see right away. has round-rimmed sunglasses in it, 
along with a mustache, beard, and sideburns. An early Halloween gift? You're joking. Do I look like I'm joking? No. Come to think of it, you rarely do. I take the elevator down to the parking garage. It's easier to exit the building from here without being noticed. I really don't like keeping a low profile, but with my dating life making the news, plus Molecular being super sensitive to media attention that isn't strictly business, our PR department has us on alert. Me, specifically. So much so, that even a casual walk down the street is frowned upon. To humor Mel, I stop at my car and use the rearview mirror to put on the sunglasses, mustache, beard, and eyebrows. Yep, there are eyebrows too. Mostly so I can send her a selfie. Huh. But the disguise actually doesn't look as fake as I thought, Not bad. so I keep it on. I leave my car and wave to the parking attendant, who shakes his head at my appearance and gives me an I-don't-want-to-know look as I step out of the garage and onto the sidewalk. I've lived in this city for most of my life, and still, when Seattle goes full summer, and I'm talking blue sky, puffy white clouds, and a scorching 82 degrees, it still surprises me how beautiful it is. But that was a couple of months ago. Today, it's a normal October day. Light rain and a cool 54 degrees. It'll be like this for most of the next five months. Our office is located in Belltown, the part of downtown that's changed the most in the last 15 years. What once was a gritty neighborhood of low-rent, dated apartments and storefronts with high crime is now the home of Christian Grey from the Fifty Shades series. Glassy new high-rises tower over crowded eateries and urban dog parks. Busy millennials, thousands of them, many of them tech employees, crowd the surrounding streets during lunch hour with badges clipped to their pockets. A streetcar runs through it all the way down Westlake Avenue, passing biotech firms, stylish home furnishing stores, vegan restaurants, artfully designed food trucks, urban supermarkets, and more. Belltown is the postcard for Seattle's extreme gentrification, yet elements of its rough past persist. Heroin needles, for one. And people in need, asking for help on street corners or napping in alcoves and covered entrances to buildings. And then, there's my personal favorite. Not because I'm a patron, but because it's basically a giant middle finger to the world around it. An adult emporium, right across the street from where I'm walking painted bright pink with an equally bright LED sign right out front, located steps away from the beating heart of the prime delivery empire. With this dumb disguise on that Mel gave me, oh yeah, I'm still wearing it, and so far I've stayed anonymous. I guess if there ever was a time to pay a visit, now would be it. Instead, I get in line at a nearby noodle shop, until I remember that oh, Mel ordered out, me lunch, which makes yep. me remember why I went for a walk in the first place, to clear my mind. I wish it was working, but all I can think about is the letter. I'm not used to sharing mental or emotional space with things that aren't work, which is probably why I'm no longer sharing a bed with a giant St. Bernard. I thought that watching Super 8 movies over the weekend with Kim and talking to her about what's going on would make me feel more at ease, but instead, I'm even more preoccupied. Speaking of the letter, you're probably wondering what's in it, why it has me fixating on home movies from decades ago and dreaming of IMO stories. Let's just say the letter has some very specific information in it. Not just information, instructions. Things connected to his and my past. And it's unmistakably written in IMO's voice, almost as if he did send it two weeks ago. Things like, 
did you? Sorry. Sorry. I, I wasn't... I, I wasn't paying attention. I... Beard. Okay. Eyebrows. Eyebrows. Where? Where's the other eyebrow? Okay. There. Put it back on. Hey, man. Are, are you okay? Did you get hit? Should we call 911? No. Please, don't. I mean, uh, I'm not hurt. Thank you, though. Hey, any chance you see my glasses anywhere? Hey, can you... <clears throat> can, can you... Can you not take photos? I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, man. Here are your glasses. They're right over there. Looks like that car got them pretty good, though. Let me help you get up. <sighs> Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I'm just... I'm just gonna get going here. I'm all right. Okay, if you say so. Hey, is your mustache okay? It's kind of leaning off to one side now. Gotta go. Thanks again. Several drivers are standing next to their cars now, with their doors open, waiting for me to get out of the crosswalk. I really hope I was able to get that eyebrow back on before anyone noticed. I start walking to the other side of the street so I can hide somewhere fast. Then I see something, not far away, a small piece of white plastic. I stoop down and grab it, holding on to the eyebrow to make sure it stays on, and quickly cross the street, passing through the crowd gathered there, and walk up a few blocks. When I'm pretty sure no one's following, I enter a storefront near a construction zone. It's a coffee shop. I ask to use the bathroom. Uh, yeah, sure. It's that way. saw what happened. Are you still at the office? You're trending on Twitter. What? Well, not you personally. Hashtag costume jaywalker is trending. <sighs> might be the most fun people are having since man and tree. I don't think anyone knows it was you, but people are zooming in on the part where you put your eyebrow back on. If I wasn't so worried about you right now, I think it was pretty funny myself. Where are you? Oh... I'm in the bathroom at, where, where am I? Uh, I'm at Roasted, on 4th. Oh, uh. Mel, can you come to me? Help me get back to the office, quietly? I'm already on my way. Maybe if I get back to work unnoticed, this all goes away. I mean, nobody knows I'm here, right? I'll be there in five minutes. I look into the mirror and realize the disguise is still on. I take it off, piece by piece, and wrap it all in paper towels and bury them at the bottom of the wastebasket. What was I thinking? 
Who wears a goofy-looking costume on a crowded street in the middle of the day for no apparent reason, almost gets hit by a car, and then flees the scene and hides in a bathroom like a scared child? I try to work out in my head the quickest way back to the parking garage. I just need to hunker down here a little longer, unnoticed, and... Hey, you're gonna be in there for a while. Uh, yeah? A little while still? Man, they really need two bathrooms in this place. <sighs> I can already see the whole thing getting twisted in the media. The more I'd try to explain that being costumed oh, no, was a dumb no. work joke, the more I'd be made into the joke. Where are you, Mel? And the company, too. And it would be all my fault. I reach back into my pocket and grab my phone, and that's when I feel it. The thing I picked up in the crosswalk. I take it out and look at it in the dim light of the bathroom and see that it's a driver's license. I can't make out the small writing, so I turn on my phone's flashlight. I freeze. I'm out of the building. I'm walking down. No. Change of plans. Okay. Can you get my car and meet me here? I don't think there's a mob waiting for me outside. At least not outside the bathroom door. Just some dude who couldn't hold it and went somewhere else, I think. Alright. I can unlock my car and start it from here. Just tell Asim you're getting it out of the garage for me. He knows you. The key card's in the console. Okay. And Mel, one more thing. Please cancel all my meetings today and tomorrow. Okay. I need to leave town for a little while. You need to do what? I need to go to Wapato. Dirt, an audio drama, is presented by Studio 5705 and is written, directed, and produced by me, Chris Cayella. This chapter features the voice talents of Ela Das as Ela, Cindy Seiler as Helen, Nicole Michelle's McDonough as Angela, Mark Field as Robert, Sarah Cayella as the project manager and barista, Jesse Brown as Mel, Stephen Matera as the car driver, Mike Grigg as the guy who helped out Joseph in the crosswalk, and John Dietrich as the dude who really needed to use the bathroom. I play the part of Joseph. For more information about Dirt, an audio drama, as well as media or sponsorship inquiries, please visit dirtaudiodrama.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app or platform. And please, spread the word. Thank you very much for listening. Again, that was Dirt and Audio Drama, Episodes 1 and 2. Are you bracing yourself? And... You're supposed to keep a low profile. From Studio 5705. For more information and episodes of the series, be sure to visit dirtaudiodrama.com and subscribe on Apple Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and Spotify to get the newest updates when Season 2 is released. And, of course, you can hear more of Dirt and Audio Drama on our show next week, where we'll talk a little more about the series' origins and listen to episodes 3 and 4, finding out more about the mysterious letter and the driver's license Joseph now holds, and where those items lead him. But if you can't wait that long, you can definitely binge the full series at their website. 
again, at dirtaudiodrama.com, and pass the time at our own webpage at midnightaudiotheater.com. Speaking of, that wraps it up for our show tonight. Feel free to email us at midnightaudiotheater at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions of what you'd like to hear on the show, and like our Facebook page, where we announce our newest MAT lineup on Friday afternoons. Thanks again for tuning in, dear listeners, and we'll be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. I'm Kathy Ranella signing off, but stay tuned. The BBC World News is coming up next.